Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined, as always, by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the work site. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are live from the mobile Kintech studio today. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and it's a, a very special day today. As mentioned, we are live on location here at Andrew Sherritt Plumbing and Heating out on 56th Avenue in Surrey, just off 196. Uh, big event happening here today at Andrew Sherritt. Again, that's on 56th Avenue in Surrey. It's a Milwaukee event Lots going on here. It's already popping off. It's busy. It's packed. So you're going to want to come down. Check it out. You can get some lunch off the grill. You can check out some live demonstrations from Milwaukee reps. Get some great deals. Plus, our street team is here. So you can score some Sportsnet 50 swag. And you can enter to win a Google Nest smart speaker. Uh, And it's very exciting. I mentioned live demonstrations. We are, in fact, using a Milwaukee MX power supply to run our setup today and it's doing a great job as far as i can tell it's not gonna be an expert not gonna pretend to be an expert here but uh it's it's doing its job i shouldn't kick the plug no don't kick the plug out tom so anyways that's where we are we are here at andrew sherritt uh 56th avenue in surrey come by say hi check out the deals come by and check out a bunch of tools and also all of andrew sherritt's great inventory (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) it's tool central here today i I think they sent uh, definitely you know the two most knowledgeable guys about power tools at the station here to come out and rep, <laughs> and rep sports at 650. The funny thing is that might actually be true because it's just an extraordinarily low bar to clear <laughs> at sports at 650. Not a lot of uh, hard skills knowledge going on at the station. Uh, anyways, we look forward I to seeing like you. Batch can fix a thing or two. Yeah, maybe. I can see I, I that. Think Batch is the Batch only... might be the the leader in the clubhouse, Batch would but be again, my clubhouse leader. It's uh, it's not it's not saying Maybe bruff. Maybe Bruff, but I don't, definitely not Mike Halford. Not, definitely not Halford. <laughs> definitely not Halford. I don't get that vibe from Bruff. I know he likes his lawn. He definitely likes his lawn. But that's, that's the uh, oldest does it go beyond thing that? about Jason Bruff. I think it does. A little bit. Just a little bit. I'm not, like, pretending he's, you know, Al Borland or anything. <laughs> I think he can uh, I think he can That's Canberra. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. It looks, anyways. Um Tambier says, I'm going to swing by and give Drancer my handwritten plan on how the Canucks will become cup contenders in two years. So there you go. If you want to uh, give us a manifesto about the Canucks, we're here. We're out in the world. Come by and say hi. But, look, we all know what the score is now with the Canucks. Just like you can come down and do some shopping and fill fill the holes in your tool collection here, the Canucks are looking to fill the holes on their roster coming up uh, in, uh, in the offseason. And... You know, we mentioned it on the show yesterday. Like, we talked a lot about kind of the big picture stuff, what the OEL buyout means and what it positions them to do. And one of the interesting things about it is now we almost have to completely reconsider the available options to the Canucks in terms of actual specific names that they could be interested in. Well, because now we're out of the they need to – it's going to be painful to move the pieces around to be players in this marketplace. And now those pieces have moved around and the the Band-Aid has been ripped off. And the pain has been swallowed by this organization in the form of the Oliver Ekman Larson buyout. And, you know, I do think you're already getting a sense in and around the industry that uh, the Canucks are 
changing their own tack in terms of what they're trying to do. Like, I don't think they'd be close to the idea of opening up more cap space, but improving this team is now the priority. Mm. I, I don't think there's much doubt about that. And there's a chance that they'll be really aggressive in, in doing that. I, you know, we've talked a lot about how Jim Rutherford's first season in Pittsburgh went, right? And it went really poorly. Mm-hmm. For those of you that don't remember, I mean, they made the playoffs on the last day of the season. It was a massive disappointment. Mike Johnston, uh, Rutherford's first coaching hire, was, um, you know, not getting it done. Team went out unceremoniously in five games in the first round. And there was a fair bit of criticism. And and what happened that summer? And and here's sort of where I think this gets interesting from the perspective of some of of the things that Sat reported on Canucks Central yesterday, but also, you know, some of what I wrote today at The Athletic in terms of tactical approaches to improving this team this offseason because there's two standout moves from Rutherford's second summer in Pittsburgh that ultimately led the team to a a Stanley Cup victory. The first is the big swing, which is Phil Kessel. Phil Kessel was the big, honking, Mm -hmm. earth-shattering swing by Jim Rutherford and his front office. Uh, That was a deal to acquire Phil Kessel from Toronto, who were looking to tank. Kessel was still a star-level player at that point in his career. And in Pittsburgh, played on the third line, and I think drove everyone a little batty, but obviously they won back-to-back Stanley Cups They put up with it. So that's the big swing approach. But here's the other one. And this one stands out to me because it's, you know, the sort of like obviously the Kessel move was a was a home run and I actually think a win win right the Leafs sure. did really well they Kessel was good enough still to prevent them from being the last place team being the last place team got them Austin Matthews uh, you know added nitrous to their rebuild it was sort of a win win but obviously winning two Stanley Cups you, you'd look at that and say that's one of the great buy one of the great buys in in the hard cap era the other part of this though is looking at his team and recognizing a lack of bottom six center depth Jim Rutherford traded Brandon Sutter to Vancouver mm-hmm. for a much cheaper center in Nick Benino and additional draft capital for what reason uh, will remain a mystery and used the excess space saved to sign Eric Fear, who played on the fourth line for the Penguins in that first cup run And that's a really interesting one for me to think about or consider because if the Canucks can do a big swing and turn one overpriced piece into two, like if that's the template here, because there's more stuff, there's Trevor Daly, there's there's like additional sort of moves at the margins, some some dice rolls that worked out. They had Justin Schultz at the deadline, which was a, a huge acquisition for them, particularly given where his stock was. So there's other moves that sort of, contribute but in terms of the main offseason maneuvers the, the the big swing and the cap allocation move to turn one overpriced piece into two comparable cheaper pieces that really broadened what Pittsburgh was able to do and, and sort of as a template you know not that not that these are analogous situations but but put yourself in the in the empathize with Canucks key decision makers everything has gone wrong this season You've been around the block. You're a three-time Stanley Cup winner and a Hockey Hall of Famer. You think that everyone has the spin on your team wrong. This season actually wasn't that big a disaster. In fact, a lot of the media criticism is unfair. And you're like, I've been here before. I've been here before. I've got the elite puck mover. I've got the two centermen. Right? Like, this isn't actually all that different. Yeah. That's the fundamental approach 
Um, you might even think I've got the, I've, I've, I've got, got my the, coach in now, right? I've got well, my that coach was part in of, now. That was part of the big change in the offseason right. there at Pittsburgh. Well, yeah, I mean that was a midseason thing, sure because they sure. listed for two two and a half months before um, ultimately ripping the bandaid off on um, uh, Mike Johnston. Johnson. Mike yeah. Johnston. Can I, oh, so many coaches with Canucks ties, unbelievable. And uh, of course, the Canucks are part of the story because in that summer, one thing they did do was they hired Mike Sullivan to be their right. NHL coach. And one of the funny sort of like intricacies of Canucks history is that the Canucks tried to get compensation from the Penguins when they promoted Mike Sullivan to the NHL head coach because the compensation regime was still in effect then. And I think the Canucks asking for compensation in that instance was what really did in the con- – <laughs> like, I think, I think the NHL rolled their eyes so hard that they undid the It was like, this is ridiculous. I'm truly, I think that was like that – that particular compensation request, I think, was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, <laughs> anyway, the so sometimes when your back's against a wall, and we see this in hockey a lot, a coach will hire their guy, their coach. Arguably, that happened, by the way, with Rick Tockett. But I mean, I think about Bob Murray in Anaheim hiring oh, yeah. Randy Carlisle for a second time, right? Like your back's against the wall, the pressure is mounting. You go with what's familiar. You go with some of what you've done before, some of what's worked for you before. And so that template of the big swing and the reallocation move, to me, just looms large in my imagination as one possible route to see through this offseason. And yet, when I think about it, let's let's well, play Satshaw. Yeah, I want to play, uh, play what our, our guy Satshaw had to say on uh, Canucks Central yesterday because I do think it's really interesting. And, you know, starting to talk about what he's hearing and what he expects the Canucks might be interested in in doing and here's sat talking about uh, the Canucks maybe being willing to take a big swing this offseason here's what I believe this team is looking to do big like I think not only are they looking to improve the team they're looking to improve it in a significant way and I don't think they're afraid at all to sign players to big contracts I don't think they're afraid at all to acquire big name players now the question is how willing are you and how aggressive are you slash reckless because if you go too aggressive, you kind of become reckless, and that's going to be the question here. I still would be surprised if they sign guys in their 30s to big contracts. Mm-hmm. But, hey, we'll find out coming up in, in a little bit time here. But like I mentioned on Friday after we heard about the OEL buyout, that the interest in Severson is telling. And I gather that they're not afraid of signing players or, or adding a player like him to a big contract to this team. Like, I don't think they're just looking to patch things over here. I think if they can find a significant piece or two, they're very much open to doing that. So that's Sat Shaw yesterday saying they're not afraid to take a big <laughs> that, swing, that, not afraid to give out a big contract, not afraid to acquire a big name player. That clip might as well be accompanied by like the psycho soundtrack, like, ee, ee, <laughs> ee, 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 ee. or maybe Jaws. Like it needs like some ominous, yeah. looming music. It's happening it's like, again. It's like, sorry, you're telling me the Vancouver Canucks aren't afraid of making a, a big contract bet when it doesn't suit their timeline? No, stop it. This team. Well, and that's and that's sort of what I'd add here like this is also part of the rutherford mo right rutherford when push comes to shove tries to get stars mm. right um, we're talking about a guy who offersheeted sergey fedorov we are talking about a guy who went out and you know busted the market open trading for doug Waite. yep um just like a, a booty of picks that if you go back and read the coverage at the time people were like oh man Wow, that's a huge price. Nothing, none of it panned out. <laughs> it was, it was like, it was like an, a twenty-one-year-old enforcer that everyone was like, he's going to add muscle to a team for twenty years, and it's like plays ten NHL games, you know, <laughs> and then and then a bounty of first-round picks, all of which St. Louis flubs, 
Uh, although, although in, in fairness to St. Louis, that was the start of a rebuilding phase that effectively lands them like Jaden Schwartz, yeah. Alex Pietrangelo, David Perron, uh, Ian Cole. Like they do, and I say Ian Cole, and people are like Ian Cole, but he was like a top seven pick. Um, you know, the fact is, is that what the Blues work, which that was the start of over the next four years, set them up for a, a decade of success that's only just ending. Anyway, for me, when I think about what this team needs, right? It's like, do they need another big name player? Do they need to win another offseason? Because we've got, a, like, there's. Canucks can barely fit the amount of banners from offseason championships that they've won in the last five years uh, in the Rafters of Rogers Arena. I mean, just look up, Patrick. And then you think about, like, has the Canucks' problem the last few years been that they don't have good players? I'd say no. Like I don't well, think the Canucks. I think it's been a. I, I do think it's been a lack of talent overall in the well, roster. Sorry, a lack of talent overall. Yeah, but this team. But I see what you mean. As opposed problem, to like individual good players. Yeah, th- this team's problem isn't that they don't have good players. It's that they haven't been able to build a good team. Right. And I look through what this team requires here. Right. And with OEL and Bears, OEL gone, Bears status uncertain. I mean, three defensemen, like three defensemen before you're saying, hey, that's a team that has a normal mm-hmm. amount of NHL-level defensemen? Like, mm-hmm. you probably need three before you're before you're getting way ahead of yourself on, like, Akito Hiroshi no, can fill they, in in the top four. They have whatever. three clear-cut NHL defensemen right now. Who's the third? Tyler Myers. Sure. Okay, sorry. So yeah. they, have, they have Hughes, Hronick, and Tyler Myers. But even Tyler Myers was at a, was at a replacement level last oh, year. Oh, sure. But so, he's like a, a – a, again, I'm not saying he goes above that, but he's like a, an NHL player, and, and obviously. I'm like I'm like on the on the far right side of the bell curve in terms of analyzing. I don't know why I'm so into bell curves these <laughs> days. Um, but like I, You're in your bell curve era. I, I like Tyler Myers, I'd say, more than market. Yeah. Like I'd say I'm, I'm more forgiving to Tyler Myers than the majority of analysts and fans in this market. I think he can play, but I also don't know that he's more than like, uh, you know, one. In, like, there's a one in three shot that he's literally replacement level last yeah, year. Yeah, sure. In next year, excuse me. So, because there's a hundred percent chance that he was replacement level last year. Um, so, you know, three defensemen, three NHL level defensemen, plus a third line center, and I think that's the bare minimum. Four pieces, ten million in cap space. To me, that situation lends itself far more credibly to the, like, if you're going to find a way to make a big swing, I think you need to also find a way to do one of those Sutter Bonino type transactions. You need to split, um, you know, you need, you need to King Solomon a player and come out with at least a couple of depth pieces from that cap space because this team's needs, I don't think, lend itself naturally to a big swing offseason. And I think if your big swing is to go after Barbashev at, you know, five times five, five yeah. point five times five, something like that. I mean, I think you're putting yourself massively behind the eight ball. Like, this is what they did last summer, right? Didn't address the defense, didn't address the defense, and used eighty-five percent of their budget on one guy. And that guy played pretty well despite a, despite a massive injury, right? Like, we like Ilya Mikheyev mm-hmm. as an ad, but it didn't help the team get better. I mean, fu- fundamentally, I think that's true. Ilya Mikheyev did not help this Canucks team get better, and and that proved itself out last season. And one of the other things that Sat did say was, you know, the thinking behind Ilya Mikheyev, it wasn't that the team was unaware of where their needs were on the blue line. It was, well, we haven't been able to do that, but just because we haven't been able to do that, it's not going to stop us from adding a player that we like somewhere else. And one of the things that Sat said yesterday as well wasn't in the clip. Except it did. No, no, no. He said I mean, it wasn't. No, no, no. He said like, in that summer, they weren't going to let the fact that they couldn't improve their defense stop them from going after Ilya McCann. Right. Now, you well, can say that 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 
hurt them down the road, I which mean, is totally fair. Or but I'm saying the thinking, the thinking in that moment was that we're still going to go at a player even if it's at a position we don't necessarily need. Or cynically, they didn't care whether or not their head coach had a full deck to play with. I mean, let's be real. And Sat said that kind of thinking could be part of their thinking again this offseason, right? Which would be where a guy like Barbashev comes in. Because, again, I think even if you just take, like, the most cursory glance at how Barbashev was used in St. Louis and Vegas, like, he was sub-40% of the face-off circle. Even in St. Louis, he was taking, like, two face-offs a game. Like, he's just no, – he, no, was, no. he was basically not playing center in any meaningful way. He's so fundamentally not a center, yeah. it, it actually blows my mind. So I, I would be shocked. To me, Barbashev would be, like – basically the equivalent of a McKayev signing where it's like, yeah, we know he's a winger, but we just really like the player. Well, That's what it would be. I, I more would than say this. taking a shot at third line center. I don't mind. In fact, I would love to see the club bring in an additional body who like is is in that profile where it's like in a pinch you can move them to Sure. Center. Sure. Like, and and there's a lot of guys that match this description. I mean Barbashev's sort of one of the higher end examples of it. But whether it's a, a Kerfoot type, a Danton Heinen type, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I mean I think there's some useful pieces i mean scott lawton would be another high-end example scott mm-hmm. lawton is sort of like a really good face-off guy who actually is a winger um and mostly plays there you know for me if you if you were able to add a piece like that and scott lawton's actually like way down my priority list because i think he's going to get a first round pick and that makes no sense no. for the canucks but you know if you can get a player like that to increase your options i think that makes a, a load of sense particularly because you know, I'm, I'm still convinced, like, what we saw from Barbashev this season was so instructive, right? He absolutely middling, like a middling middle six guy in, yep. in the at center. And you move him to wing and put him on, put him with skilled guys and, and like, that touch pass. And he's a force of nature. But but he made, like, he made, like, this touch pass in traffic off a point shot that set up, like, a tap in. Like, he was just injuring guys. Like, you know, he, he reminded me of, like, <laughs> Jamie McGinn in the, in the 2011 Western Conference Final where mm-hmm. it was, like, every hit he threw at a Canucks defenseman, like, you saw them grabbing their shoulders and stuff. Like, just a black and blue player through and through, which this team so desperately needs. But I just think he's so obviously a winger and and I do think that experience is worth keeping in mind in in my stubborn insistence that JT Miller despite his finish right and he played 25 games that made me look a little silly because he was great after Rick Tockett took over but I still think if you're gonna get the best out of like there's a similar glow up where it's like oh man JT Miller just absolutely leveled that guy like yeah he's punishing on the forecheck his skills at F1 his skills at F1 and and when he ha- when he's making instinctive plays are so much better than his plays when he's F three reading the play being slow and deliberate. I just think his game works better when it's sped up. I think that in every respect, like I really do think there's a chance of the Canucks getting that type of glow up too from a guy who really struggled. Like at the end of the day, only had 31 five on five points this past season. Um, I just think there's a totally different level to his game that can be unlocked when he's a winger. I've been saying it for two years, and, and I'm going to keep saying and it. And with a guy like Barbashev, it's just he so clearly doesn't fit what the Canucks need from the third-line center, right, which is a, a matchup guy who's a legit center, good in the faceoff circle, killing penalties, all of that, right? So like, it just you, does, the profile doesn't fit whatsoever s- at see, center. I don't know that you need a matchup guy. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, Well, a, a secondary matchup guy at least, I think. Maybe, maybe. I, I mean, I think it depends on where you play Miller and, and how it all works. Like, I, I do think there's a world where you can absolutely get away with a pious suitor type playing third line center, mm-hmm. um, provided that you're feeding Pedersen toughs, right? If, if, if Pedersen can sure. hold up in toughs, and I believe he can, then I think there's a world where 
you can absolutely get away without getting the perfect right-handed. Well, and, and again, like right-handed penalty killing matchup caliber centerman is really tough to find. No, I mean, n- name them on the market. It's <laughs> JT Comfer. Yeah. Who, who, by the way, is going to get overpaid. Is going to get he, a huge deal. Because he can't. Be- because he can't, he's that guy. Well, and he can't drive at five on five and he doesn't score at five on five. So it's like, you're yeah. really, t- you're really paying for a third line guy who can, who, who is skilled enough to play on the power play because of his profile. And I mean, JP Pajot on the trade market. Like there's not, it's, <laughs> there's a reason these guys get paid the way they do. Mm-hmm. They're extremely rare. I, I think, I think getting obsessed with those qualities and and um, ignoring you know your camp pious suitor class is again falling into the big swing mistake. But camp, see, for me, camp checks it so much more because he is so much more defensively responsible. You know what I mean? Then, like then who? Uh, then Barbashev at center. You know what oh, I mean? Sure. Like that's what I'm saying. Barbashev, it's like it doesn't give well, you any of that kind of reliability. Re- yeah, I wouldn't down say the it's, I wouldn't say it's responsibility. I think he works. Like I think he's aware. I just don't think he's. I just. It's not that he's bad. It's just that he's fine. And on the wing, he's great. Yeah. It's it's more about the gap in value. Like, why pay a guy who can be great, at, you know, even at, at the rate of a first-line winger, to play at a third-line level? Like, that, to me, just doesn't square. Uh, we, we got lots more to get into. We'll run through some uh, some other specific names to talk about, too. Plus, I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about just, like, the nature of what being aggressive means and what it could mean for this team, building on what Sat had to say. Uh, keep your text coming in, 650-650. We are live on location at Andrew Sherritt Plumbing and Heating on 56th Avenue in Surrey. Big Milwaukee event happening here today, so come say hi. Check out some great deals. Ryan Clark of ESPN joins us next year. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nizar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz. Live from the Mobile Kintex studio, NHL draft coverage is brought to you by the Vancouver Giants, showcasing NHL prospect talents, including Samuel Hanzik and Jaden Lipinski. Come watch NHL talent in action. Go to VancouverGiants.com. Slash ticket 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We are live on location at Andrew Sherritt Plumbing and Heating on 56th Avenue in Surrey. Come say hi. Uh, but right now, before we get into the inbox, uh, it is our pleasure to be joined uh, by our pal from ESPN covering the NHL, Ryan Clark. Ryan, thank you very much, as always, for making time for us. How are you? Good, good. How are you gentlemen doing this afternoon? We're doing uh, we're doing very well. We're doing the show outside today, so even though it's a little uh, a little overcast and a little gray here, it's still nice to be uh, to be out of the studio. And you know what else is great? I mean, we can actually really talk about the Canucks offseason in earnest now because they finally have cap space after buying out Oliver Ekman Larson last week. Well, let's start here. Overcast in Vancouver. Who? I know. What a shock. What a shock. Stunning. (laughs) Says the person who lives in Seattle, where it's always sunny, clearly. But (laughs) look, as far as the Canucks offseason is concerned, yes, they were able to create cap space because it's something that we've talked about on this show. It's something Thompson and I've talked about, too. It's like you look at the Canucks on cap friendly, and when you see that they're in the red before the offseason starts, it's like, 
that's like, yo, homie, how do I break this to you? Um, that ain't good. Like, that, that's like kind of like Friday when he's like, how are you going to get fired on your day off? Like, of course, we're joking. It's that, it's that whole argument of just like everybody's trying to get better in the offseason. And there's a lot of cap situations teams are going to have to sort through. But when you start off in the hole, it doesn't matter who you are. It's just it's not the place to be. And, if yes, you're the Canucks, you're able to create some space, and, and, and that's going to help. Now, of course, when you look at, like, okay, what that penalty is going to be over the next few years, I mean, yeah, it's, what, 146000 for 23-24, and it goes to 2.3, and then two years of 4.76, and it goes back down to 2.1. Clearly, that third and fourth year don't help. But at the same time, like, you're trying to find flexibility and create some sense of, 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 let's say, freedom in a sense as you're trying to put this together in a way that works for you, knowing that for the Canucks, like, it's such an interesting place that they're in right now. Like, are certain guys on the move? Are certain guys going to stay? What is the plan going forward? And it seems like finding some sense of continuity for a team that looks like it could go in a number of different directions, like, that at least gives them something. Ryan, less surprising news bulletin. Okay, ready? I'm going to give you three options. One, overcast in Seattle and Vancouver. Two, Philadelphia Flyers unveil new uniforms that look exactly like the old uniforms. Three, Canucks considering using newly found cap space to make a big swing and aren't afraid of landing a long-term commitment for a player under the age of 30. What's, What's the least surprising of those three? We know which one is the least surprising, but because I know you, I, I will say three and play your game. I know you. Uh, but no, but to be serious, like, it is not as surprising to hear that the Canucks want to try to engage with someone, but it goes back to, like, the overall theme of this team and the direction going forward, which is, okay, what path are they going to take? Like, we're hearing a lot of teams talk about taking the time that they need to get to where they, they want to be. And we've seen it work in this league. Now, yes, there are some teams that have been aggressive, but they've had sort of, let's say, the canvas to go be aggressive. Like Vegas, once we knew what Vegas was, Vegas could always be in win-now mode because you knew from the expansion draft on, let's say by that December, that this was going to be a team that was in the playoffs or at least could compete for the playoffs. Whereas if you look at a team like the Canucks, it's so strange because in 18 months, We've literally ran the gamut of this team from, hey, they're up and coming to, you know, they're not that far away from the playoffs to, hey, what's going to happen in the next few years? Because it just seems like it's so hard to say when you compare them to what's going on, let's say, in Los Angeles. Um, When you compare them to what's another young project, like let's say St. Louis, where even though the Blues have their questions, the Blues have three first-rounders. It's capital they can use either – build from within or maybe move to get players. But then here's the other thing about the Blues that doesn't get talked about enough. When you look at their history, the Blues have never been out of the playoffs for more than four seasons. They are back in the playoffs within four seasons whenever they miss. And, yes, that's a pretty strong track record. Whereas if you're the Canucks, like, you've got to be able to figure out what your identity is, but more importantly, like, what is the realistic timeline? But what makes it so difficult is, and it's something, again, we've all talked about before, whether it be on the show or in person or just people in the streets who live there, you have Elias Pettersson, you have Quinn Hughes, you have 
Thatcher Demko, you have JT Miller, you had some talent and still have some talent on that roster that should be able to win games. And so it's kind of a perplexing thing. Like, is this a team that it's still in build for the future mode? Or is it that team that because of the talent it has, should it be more aggressive now? Well, and I, when I hear, you know, that the Canucks are interested in being aggressive, I mean, one, as Drancer said, it's not that surprising. But also, you know, I always think there are other ways of being aggressive rather than just going out and signing one of the top UFAs on the market, right? And I especially look at, you know, this summer, which is going to be maybe the last year, the last summer of the flat cap era for the NHL. There's likely to be a fair number of players on the trade market available for a pretty reasonable price and I just wonder if you know it's one thing to be aggressive but if you're a team in the Canucks position if you maybe just have to reconsider exactly what it means to be aggressive and I guess be willing to be both aggressive and creative simultaneously well and that's the thing it's just like when you look at their cap situation which we've all talked about and let's just look at Fords for example like the Fords that they have again let's assume that they keep all of them like you have some players that look, you're going to be able to produce with, if you get some more help in there, it's going to make sense. But it's like you said, how do they make those moves to where it's subtle and it works for them? And so let's look at two examples of like subtle trades that teams made that people say, wow, this really paid off in spades. The first one being, think about when the Colorado Avalanche looked at the New York Islanders cap situation. They trade a couple picks for Devon Tays and Devon Tays becomes a top two defenseman for them. You look at all his underlying metrics, Devon Tays, if he wasn't playing with Kale McCarr, like his numbers alone, people would make a case for does this guy deserve to maybe get some Norse consideration because his numbers in terms of the all-around, they are extremely strong. Another example, and we saw it you know, around this time a year ago when the Kraken made the trade for Oliver Bjorkstrand. That was taking advantage of a team that was going through some cap issues. You add a, a top-nine winger who can play in top six roles for you. He can do a bunch of different things. And as we saw with Seattle throughout the playoffs, like it was a team that could get contributions from everyone everywhere. And Bjork Strand was very much a part of that in the regular season and in the postseason. So like if you're the Canucks, you're trying to look for those moves. But of course, everyone is trying to look for those moves at this point. But really, it's all about just sort of like if you're them, what are the moves that make sense? Because like, yes, we talk about forward, but there's some moves to be made on the back end as well with the fact that there's what four guys currently under contract i mean yeah there's a well five guys excuse me well no four guys under contract i forgot because dermot's a rfa so four or five how you want to look at it but the, the point being is this like it's about trying to nip and tuck where you can make some adjustments where you can and seeing what players you can add while also working within the flat cap which has been a challenge for everyone ryan rick dollywall uh, our friend, and I don't know if he's yours, but he should be. He's a, he's a delightful character. Oh, Rick's a uh, great guy. Reporting today, yeah, he's reporting today that the Canucks might have some interest in Carson Soucy. You're in Seattle. You've been around that team more than just about anyone. What is your scouting report on Carson Soucy? Is he a guy, in your view, who could have some top four upside? He certainly could, because what you know, Carson Soucy, just in the years he's been in Seattle, we make it sound like it's forever. It's only been two seasons. But what you've seen from him is someone who can bring a lot of different things. So last year, the Kraken were a team, as in 2021-22, that it needed offensive contributions from everyone. He had 10 goals and 21 points. And he was someone who came up with some goals at some pretty 
important time shooting. Like, yes, it still ended up being a lottery team, but it was proof that he was able to provide some offensive production. This season, less of that, three goals, 16 points in 78 games. It was more part of a rotation, but he can do some different things for some teams. I mean, he is someone who you can use in heavy minute situations. He's someone you can use on the penalty kill. He's someone that gives you uh, a defenseman with a six foot five, 210 pound frame that could play top four, top six minutes for a team like Vancouver. He could easily make a case for the, for the top four with what he did uh, the last few years in Seattle. But look, he's someone that if you're the Canucks or any team that's trying to look for a defenseman that can do a bunch of different things and also add some size, he's someone that would definitely make a lot of sense, especially if, again, you're the Canucks and you're trying to address your defensive issues. Someone like Carson Soucy would be a good place to start. And sticking with the uh, with the Kraken, Ryan, you know, they're one of the more interesting teams in the offseason for me because they're one of the rare teams that was both good last year, made the playoffs one around, and has significant cap space and cap flexibility this offseason. And how I, I look at the Pacific Division, right? And, you know, obviously the Stanley Cup champion, uh, Vegas Golden Knights, uh, another excellent team in the Edmonton Oilers. I think L.A. is really going to try to push to get better. How aggressive do you think Seattle will be, you know, uh, being mindful of kind of how good their division could be and, and, and the opportunity they might have to be aggressive and try to improve this year? It's hard to say for a few reasons because something we don't really talk about enough when it comes to the Kraken is, for Ron Francis, this is the first time he's ever really been in this situation to expand upon what he can do in an offseason. You think about his years in Carolina. He was a GM that definitely made additions, but it wasn't like there was a ton of cap space. It wasn't like the team at that point was constantly making the playoffs. Uh, and so he'd never really been in this position, whereas if now you've got cap space, you've got a team that you clearly have a formula that has shown it can work. You've got prospects coming through the system, which, yes, we talk about Maddie Beniers, and rightly so, but you saw what Ty Carty did in the postseason. That's giving people confidence internally. You look at what Riker Evans uh, did in the AHL this season. He's another player. You look at what's going on in the AHL Coachella Valley. That's another example of how they feel. They've got layers and then other prospects like Ryan Winterton and, and the like. Again, there's a strong feeling in Seattle that things could work. But in terms of how you spend the cap space, like it's interesting because if you're them, number one, you want to get a new deal done for Vince Dunn. Vince Dunn, there's a couple executives you speak to this year who said Vince Dunn was playing like a top two defenseman. And Vince Dunn was arguably in the discussion for their best overall player. Vince Dunn did practically damn near everything that you could ask for of a, of a top two, top four defenseman. And he's a player that once he was able to get more minutes, you saw what could become of that. And as we were seeing with defensemen, those players are getting paid. So once you get a guy like him under contract, Will Borgen is another player that comes to mind. Morgan Geeky showed progress. And then, of course, there was what Daniel Spron did. And then there's that question of what happens with Ryan Donato. Once you have an idea of what you want to do, then sure, if you're the Kraken, you want to go make the most of your cap space. Because the, the, the thing is this, like if you're them, you're trying to look at areas – that, that, again, you feel are, are, are points of emphasis to address. And when you look at them, you think maybe it's defense. But then again, it's like, well, they've got quite a few players under contract. Once they get deals done for Borgen and Dunn, that'll create a little bit of space. We don't know what's going to happen with, with Carson Soucy. Goaltending seems to be something that they have addressed with what Grubauer did in the playoffs. You're going to get a healthy Chris Drieger back. So there, there's that. Burakovsky is going to be healthy, which, again, that's another $5.5 million player who's going to come back. So the thing with them is this. They're going to have the money 
But to hear the way they talk about money, especially Ron Francis, he said in the past, you try to spend ownership's money like it's your own. And ownership from day one is said there. You've got the green light to do whatever you need to do to go make this team better. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Ron Francis and his front office staff are just going to spend to spend. They're going to spend in areas where they think it makes sense. And when you look at the composite of what the Kraken were this year, it literally took the Vegas Golden Knights getting to the cup final for them to tie the Kraken in terms of having the most players who scored at least one goal in the postseason. That's just how deep the Kraken were in terms of scoring. So is it, scoring they need to address is it defense is it goaltending whatever the case may be but the point is that they have a lot there and while they have the money it seems like they're not going to spend just the spend the vegas golden knights have obviously set a ludicrously high bar for the kraken one that you can tell in some ways it is a bit of a strain on the organization, in my opinion, just watching them from afar and covering them occasionally. I'm curious about Vegas's success leveling up with aggressive moves for elite pieces and whether or not the Kraken feel pressure to tread a similar path or whether or not Ron Francis's trademark patience might run contrary to the Vegas model. What's your expectation? Will, will we see the Kraken consider a big swing? this offseason it doesn't necessarily seem like it because that's not been their mo but to be completely honest with you two get why their conversations about seattle and vegas because they're the two most recent teams but when you look at this cup final you could argue it applies to everyone in the league because one of the narratives of this this cup final was these are two teams that within the last year went through some pretty instant changes to get them to the cup final so, yeah, we, we talk about Vegas and this sort of win now, win at all costs mentality, but, like, Vegas went through another coach. It had to come up with some options at goaltender with what happened with Robin Leonard. You look at what happened at the deadline with, as related to the Mark Stone injury, going out and getting Barbashev. And, of course, as Kelly McCrimmon talked about, there were times where people had questions, not necessarily them, but questions about, like, what version of Jack Eichel would they be getting and it's an example of a team that a year ago missed the playoffs that literally won the whole thing. And with Florida, how often do you see a president's trophy winner go from having fewer points and almost missing the playoffs to they get to the cup final and are three games away from winning it. And Florida had to go through some changes. They lost a lot of pieces from that team that won the president's trophy, but yet they had to sort of figure things out. And remember at the deadline, they had no cap space. They couldn't do anything. So they really had to kind of be smart about their choices. But also you think about the coaching change as well. Like Andrew Burnett, his system was one where yeah. his teams, they play quick, they score, they get up the ice. Like the running joke with one of the comments back in South Florida, Dave Hyde, was they could be down by three in the third. And you think they still have a chance to win because that's how much they could score. But it was a style that didn't see them get beyond the, the second round. This year, they, they bring in Paul Maurice. They play a much more physical style, maybe not as explosive. Again, almost missed the postseason, but yet they make it to the cup final and went through a gauntlet to, to get there. And so, yes, we talk about Vegas and we talk about Seattle because they're the new teams and one has done this, can the other do it? But honestly, when you look at what Vegas and Florida have done in the sense of how quickly things can change, that's maybe really the narrative to kind of talk about when it comes to the league in the sense of if you're a team, how quickly can your fortunes change? 
And on the flip side of that, look at Colorado. Like, Colorado a year ago was a super team that was a good yeah. And while they were still a good Hollowed playoff team, so fast. They, went through, they went through some cap challenges that it was just a different team. Like, yes, it was a team that was still a game away from going to the second round, but it was not the team it was a year ago. So, again, like, we always talk about how quickly things can change in this league. That's another example. Ryan, with Susie leaving, that second pair LD spot stands out to me. And, and not to disparage the patron saint of this particular podcast, Will Borgen, but the Borgen um, Alexiak pair uh, was sort of, it looked to me like a bit of a weak link relative to how stable their third pair was, albeit in soft minutes, and, and how much Dunn and Larson sort of dominated play. Uh, and, and outscored their opponents when they were on the ice. Uh, that, to me, lingers as, like, a spot I look at and think, man, if the if the Kraken could bump Alexiak down to that third pair and find uh, a, an upgrade uh, at second pair LD, like, to me, that would be, unless you're adding a star center, uh, like, number one item on Francis's shopping list, do you think we could see them get in the mix for a, for a Noah Hannafin type? what's interesting about that is who drafted Noah Hannafin dot 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 but in all seriousness this is where it sort of gets complicated like this is this is where it gets complicated having this discussion when we look at where teams get into cap trouble one of the areas is how much are they paying Mm. third pairing defensemen do you really want a 4.6 million dollar third pairing defenseman if you're paying that kind of freight for a defenseman like Jamie Alexiak, you, you want him playing in your top four. Now, yes, if it's a situation where you bring up someone, and going back to Riker Evans real quick, Riker Evans is someone that organization has felt strongly about for the longest time. It was around this time a year ago. People were on record and saying they thought Riker Evans was going to be in the NHL at some point in, in, in the 22-23 season. Of course, that didn't happen just because you look at how well the Kraken were playing. And he didn't need him just yet, plus they could afford to let him sit. But that's the other equivalent in this conversation is if Riker Evans is the player that they think he could be as a puck-moving top-four defenseman, maybe that's an option they go with. But also, here's another reason why it stands out. You're talking about someone on a cheap contract, which if you have someone on a cheap contract, I mean, you see someone, whether it's Jamie Alexiak or any defenseman, who makes north of $4 million playing on a third pair, that's a little bit of an easier thing to swallow because, again, you're offsetting that cost with someone who's much cheaper. Whereas if you bring in someone like a Noah Hannafin or even in free agency, if it gets to that point with someone like Matt Dumber or whoever the defenseman is, they're going to cost you money. And just talking to different execs, that's one of the things you keep hearing this offseason is when it comes to this free agency market, you don't necessarily want to overpay and you don't want to put yourself into a situation that hamstrings you later down the road. And one of the ways you do that is just trying to be smart with your money. And so if you're the Kraken or any team, you have Jamie Alexiak, he can do a lot for you. But at 4.6, is that money better parked knowing that it's in your top four as opposed to it's in your top six because you added another piece that costs the same much versus if you brought in someone from above, well, someone from below, excuse me, in the AHL, who cost you a little bit less, maybe it's a little bit easier to offset that cost. Ryan, great stuff, man. We appreciate it. Uh, We are looking forward to the draft and free agency, and hopefully we'll talk soon. You got it. See you guys later. Thanks for having me.
Our pleasure. That is Ryan Clark of ESPN uh, joining us to uh, talk a little bit about where the Canucks are positioned and also uh, diving into the uh, their Pacific Division rivals uh, in Seattle, who I do really think are going to be fascinating. And he did a good job of kind of outlining the different considerations, Ron Francis's uh, you know, kind of patient MO typically versus what they did last year and the opportunity to not just improve, but I also think about the part of the concern with Seattle has to just be about consolidating as well, right? Protecting yourself against any sort of step backwards that you might take, again, in a division which uh, could be pretty competitive and pretty tough to uh, to play in next year. The Pacific is going to be a gauntlet. Make no mistake. I, I really think there's... Um, a chance that it's going to be the second best division in, in hockey uh, behind the Atlantic. And, and I mean, we'll see what happens, but Tampa Bay is getting a little long in the tooth, although I'm not betting against them yet. Mm. Boston, I'm, I'm getting prepared to bet against, although I've done it a few times in the past five years and gotten burned. This time I, I actually believe it, although we'll see if Bergeron and Krejci decide to take one more run. That would obviously tilt things yep. significantly. But even if those teams lose a click off their fastball and even if the Leafs do too you know I look at Buffalo as an emerging buzzsaw I look at Ottawa as a team that profiles like one that could level up really fast and I look at Detroit the same way like I don't think Detroit's far off from first of all I don't think Detroit was far off in quality this year from teams like the Seattle Kraken and the Winnipeg Jets in the West it's just that the Atlantic was such a absolute gauntlet this season that uh, you know I I think that was hard for them to show Uh, you know the Metro I don't know, like the Devils, obviously, and the and the Carolina Hurricanes and the Rangers are, are tough sledding, make for tough sledding. I, I won't be surprised by a Pittsburgh Penguins bounce back, but I don't think the Pacific's far off in quality from the Metro, and I think the Central. Oh, I don't think so, no. And yeah. I think the Central's like the sick old man division at this point. Like, I really think those teams are in for a, a few years of sort of resetting the decks here, particularly because the Wild have that cap crunch for two years running the Dallas Stars still have too much money committed to middle six guys middle six caliber contributors um you know the Jets are in a world of hurt uh, so I really think there's a there's a world where the Pacific Division emerges behind the Atlantic as the second toughest in the league yeah and even in the Atlantic you know most I think every other like the Atlantic has the Habs but of the teams that clearly project to be also rands and are not even really trying to be good like the habs are the best of that group you know what i mean like or or at least close to it they're not the coyotes and the blackhawks like the true like we we are doing everything we can to avoid i know it's different with the blackhawks now but you know what i mean like even even their even their cellar dweller is like a cut above other cellar dwellers i I mean i think they'll be a cut above san jose this year but i could see anaheim being uh, as good or better, mm. depending on how they use the $20 million in cap space that they have to spend to get to the cap floor. Uh, we will take a break. Lots more Canucks offseason talk to get into. Uh, hit us up with your suggestions, thoughts. You have a player that you're interested in that you think the Canucks should be interested in. Let us know in the Dunbar Lumber text line 650-650. Uh, or come by and, and tell us in person. We're here uh, at Andrew Sherritt Plumbing and Heating on 56th Avenue in Surrey. So come check it out. Come say hi. More Canucks talk on the way here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trans, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. We are live from the mobile Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. 
Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And as I've mentioned, we are live at Andrew Sherritt Plumbing and Heating on 56th Avenue in Surrey, where there is a massive Milwaukee event today. It is busy. It is happening here. We're here. The street team is here. You can get lunch off the grill. Plus, there's live demonstrations happening from Milwaukee reps. You can score some absolutely excellent deals. You can get some 650 swag. You might be able to get some uh, Milwaukee swag while you're down here as well. Uh, Plus, you can enter win a Google Nest smart speaker. And again, it is just fantastic milwaukee power tools and accessories as far as the eye can see here uh at andrew sherrod so if you're if you're out if you're driving around come by say hi uh, and check out the deals that are available as well uh 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text line uh tyler says uh 650 is that a plumbing store is applicable since we're all trying to find ways to unclog the canucks current issues so uh, there you go get your jokes off uh, as well in the uh, Dunbar Lumber text line. And, I mean, hey, they've uh, they've unclogged at least part of the salary cap issue. Maybe not all of it, but got a major blockage uh, out of the way with the Oliver ekman Larson buyout. A, m- a major blockage out of the way. Is that the metaphor we're going with? <laughs> I'm just building off with Tyler. I, I, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to think of it. Like, you know. I don't the- know enough about plumbing to, like, accurately nail the metaphor oh here. sorry neither do i to be you know clear. what i mean so my uh, my grandfather this is complete digression my grandfather was um uh fought in world war ii and was wounded by a mortar shell that deprived him of his sense of smell all right and turning an event adva- a disadvantage into a strength he became a plumber he, he was a plumber who specialized in the jobs no one else could do <laughs> and had had success in in cabbage town in toronto that is uh turning lemons into lemonade right there you gotta do it sometimes you know <laughs> it's fantastic well, again this is one of those things like sometimes weaknesses can be strengths right sometimes you can turn your weaknesses into good strategy and i do think that that's a useful context through which to view this canucks offseason in particular because you know blockages clearing mm-hmm. blockages like they haven't really cleared the blockage so much as they've cleared it enough to run the tap, uh-huh. but at the expense of lower water pressure for <laughs> eight years. Right? Yep, so it's, sure, it's, sure. It's not cleared so much as it's, like, ameliorated, right? Like, it's it's lessened. And, and I think that's, again, when I go through options, you know, I'm convinced – that it would be a mistake for this organization to go after the, to go shopping for name brands this offseason. I think that's a, a useful way of thinking about it. Like there are too many needs and there are there is too little cap space for this team to do what actually needs to be done to put this team on on track to have like a fun season. Playoffs or not, just a fun season. Just a season where it's like you watch every game and you know you're getting an honest effort. Mm-hmm. You know you're going to, you know, have a, have a group of guys that will overachieve relative to relative to their talent base. Um, you know, that's not just going to be reliant on like, well, if Demko's one of the top five goalies, this team, you know, should be a coin flip to make the playoffs. I mean, this is where I, I do think, you know, you, you think about JT Comfort. Right, JT Comfort is the name brand top centerman on the free agent market. But for me, 
you know, Pius Suter, non-name brand, yep. is the way better option for Vancouver given what it'll likely cost to actually bring him in and what he can actually do, which uh, certainly at five on five it is not that different, right? He's still a penalty killer even if he's not an elite penalty killer. I'd throw Camp in there too even though I think he's more of a fourth-line guy than a top-nine guy. Yep. You know, because at least – his utility on the PK matches what Comfort will bring, which is where, in my opinion, he'd have the biggest impact for Vancouver. Um, it's just that, you know, he'll cost literally half as much for one-third the amount of term. And, and I really think that's where – so, you know, people are going to are gonna bring up Brandon Carlo, right? Because the Boston Bruins need, need to clear, clear salary. Cap yep. space. Brandon Carlo's role has been reduced over over the last few years, which, by the way, I always take as a big red flag. 100%. Uh, he's dealt with durability issues. He's got four years of term. The cap number is reasonable. The size is undeniable. But if you watch the Bruins play and watch him on retrievals, uh, can struggle to turn his back and, and beat on, on coming forwards to the puck on dump-ins, um, not a dynamic puck mover in any respect, could probably play with Quinn Hughes, but, you know, so can a lot of guys. And, again, why are you paying full freight and taking on a lot of risk there when Cody Cece is free, right? There's the name brand and there's the value buy. And I think when you go up and down the list, like Barbashev, Barbashev is going to be $25 million yeah. in total value. Pierre Engvall, also not really a center, big winger, not nearly as physical or dynamic or good in any respect as Barbashev, right? But if he if he makes four and a half million in total value on his next contract it'll be like a good outcome for him that's the sort of move that the Canucks should be bulk buying you know you talk about the Florida Panthers model or replicating well, the Florida Panthers it's like it's like go do the Florida Panthers thing from the summer of or from the fall of 2020 and the go thing bulk is like buy. that's the part I wanted to get at with uh, the idea of being aggressive because I don't have a problem with looking to aggressively improve your circumstances no. and even improve your team for this upcoming year specifically. I don't inherently have a problem with that. I do think, and I made this point a little bit to uh, to Ryan Clark when we were talking to him, like there has to be a- aggressive can't just mean we're going out to sign one of the five most in-demand free agents and we're going to pay whatever it costs to get them. Like there are other right. ways of being aggressive. And to your point. But there's only one way for this organization, right? This organization. Well, traditionally, yeah. This organization keeps maxing out their credit card on the name brand player, the guy you've heard of, the guy who excites the fans and, and probably ownership, right? As opposed to doing the work to build a team that's more than the sum of its parts. And I just have zero appetite for this team to go big game hunting this offseason when what they need are like four or five singles, yeah. right? Like, I'd way rather see this team continue to try and find the next Dakota Joshua or the next Andre Kuzmenko, right? The next value guy, the next undervalued guy, the next off-the-radar guy as opposed to watching them go in and try to find the next Ilya Mikheyev. I, I mean, I, I really do think that that's the pool that they need to shop in. And, and this all sort of comes back to my idea of, you know, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, like what's a reasonable expectation for the Canucks next season? What does success look like? What does making the Oliver ekman Larson buyout stand up entail? Yeah, how do you make it worth it? How do you justify the pain in the future? And, and I've got my answer for you. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've decided that this is what I want from the Canucks. This is what I want. This is what I expect. This is the standard by which we should judge them. I want the Canucks to have a fun team. I want I want it to be fun to watch the Canucks play, and co- and I want it to be fun to, to cover them. And let's be real. It's been unrelenting misery for three years. The, the, the moments of, like, Bruce, there it is, 
You know what I mean? It, like the the moments of like people getting excited about Akito Hirose and the Rick Tockett mm-hmm. bump, like that is the thinnest gruel. It's not about making the playoffs because again, I think if you have Buffalo season last year, everyone's like, "Wow, that's awesome! What 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 a great time!" You know, it's fun to watch a couple of Canucks players, but it's not fun to watch this team. It's certainly not fun to follow this team. It's not fun to watch the drip drip of bad news. Um, CBA violations, uh, human rights complaints, uh, sort of just like pool around this team. The the constant distractions, the constant, like at multiple times over the past two years, we've had someone from the team publicly talk about how it's like time to stop pointing fingers and, and backfighting internally, right? Like be on the same page, run a tight ship, have fun on the ice, make it so that Vancouver is not such a tough place to play in. I think that's a crucial part, too. Like, one thing I often think about because, and this goes back to my Florida Panthers experience, in Florida, when you lose, you can hear a pin drop. The noise goes away. In Vancouver, the noise is constant. It's just that when you're winning, it's positive. Or when you're exceeding expectations, it's positive. And when you're losing, it's still there. It's just hard. It's It's just there and negative. And a fun season. Like, remember when this was fun? Remember when this was fun? Because it hasn't been in far too long. I just think that's what the Canucks need to get back to doing and bringing in another guy on a cap hit that everyone looks at the day it's signed or, or acquired and says, ooh, ooh, boy. Like those releases where your stomach drops, right, where they trade for Philip Hironik and your, and your palm hits your face, right, which was my reaction to the Oliver ekman Larson acquisition. It was my reaction to the J.T. Miller, Miller signing. It was my reaction to the Hironik deal. Like, just do common sense, sharp common sense stuff in an effort to build a fun team. That's my standard. I don't think that's unreasonable. Well, and to your point about, you know, the comparison to the Florida Panthers and what they did a few summers ago with kind of the bulk bets, and even you just look at the last, like, since Bill Zito came in, I don't think anyone could accuse the Florida Panthers of being unaggressive, right? They've been extremely well, aggressive, and, I and think. I, I'd say they even slipped into recklessness sure. ahead of the deadline a year ago, right? Like, that was that was by far the worst work that he's put in since he took over my point is that was more Canucks you can be I think there is a way to stay on the right side of aggressive without dipping in to the recklessness as you said which tends to manifest in you know big July 1st signings or uh, reckless trade deadline deals those sorts of things but to me the one one of the ways to accomplish being aggressive without being reckless is volume Right. Yeah. Rather than looking and say, OK, hey, and I don't think they're doing this. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they're still going to try to explore other ways of uh, of clearing up cap oh, space. I, right? I will. I will. I'm sorry. I won't be surprised if they consider other ways. I don't think it's a top priority. And, and you know, we talked about wait and see, like until this organization has like a run of time in which they do like sharp, common sense, simple stuff. My expectation is is that they're going to go for the marquee. Yeah. They're going to go to, like, juke the excitement in a market that's uh, pretty skeptical, I think, about how this team is operated and how, how they're faring and, and what their team quality is. I think they're going to try and r- sort of reignite excitement in one fell swoop because that's what they've done every year. And I, they've done it across management groups. I just think, it, again, it's this false dichotomy between, like, ultra patience and aggressiveness and trying to improve. Totally. And you can be... There's a middle route. There's a middle route, and I think it involves a high volume of transactions, right? Whether it's well, guys you're bringing in, doing more to clear other players off the roster, right? Like you mentioned the uh, you know, the Brandon Sutter, Nick Benino thing where you're kind of getting two players that add up to the price of one and end up helping you way more. Like 
things like that to me fit squarely squarely in the category of aggressive and can really dramatically improve this team next year but there it's but it's a far different thing than hey we got to go sign barbershop for five times five so let me uh let me let me add another qualifier right mm-hmm. i have no problem with the moral imperative of trying to win every year as as you yes. would, as you would quite rightly put mm-hmm. it i have no problem with that what i don't want to see is a move that limits this team's ceiling going forward that is the standard, right? Like, people were surprised by my admiration of the Provorov deal, but it's that when you trade a first and a second for Philip Peronik and our position like the Canucks, for me, that dramatically impacts your ability to, like, land the sort of cost-controlled players that you're going to need, mm-hmm. given how you've committed your cap space and given the state of this team's prospect system and given the draft capital that they have. When Columbus does it, and they still are picking third overall and adding an elite piece and have, and have picked, what, in the first round six times across the last three years, it hurts a lot less. It feels a lot different, right? That, to me, is the standard. Like, if you sign a 27-year-old with, you know, Barbashev's 27, so it's like he's not 30, okay? But this is a guy who plays, like, he takes a lot of hits, Got he a delivers lot a lot of hits. Body, yep. he's, not, he's not a standard 27-year-old. Like, when Quinn Hughes is 27, right, He's going to have taken, like, six hits in his entire <laughs> NHL career because yeah. no one can catch him, right? And he's, and, he's a, and he's going to have thrown, like, six hits because he's Quinn Hughes and he just takes the puck from you, right? It's going to be materially different. Barbashev is the exact type of profile of a guy who's, like, 27 going on 31 and in a league where, you know, there's, like, 20 guys over the age of 35 who played major roles for NHL teams this season, right? Like, age is not what it used to be in the NHL. Guys, like... We saw Oliver Ekman Larson play his age 31 season. What do you think? Yeah. Did it look like he had gas left in the tank? Like, guy, it, age comes, time comes for NHL players faster than ever, given the physicality of the game today and the speed of the game today. And I think you have to be super conscious of that um, and avoid committing term, in, in particular, term and money, that combination. That, that for me, like, my uh, almost my ideal Canucks offseason is find a way to conservatively place some bets on the blue line and at third line center uh, without adding, you know, like if you can do it without adding more than three years of term in any deal, even if it doesn't work out next season, I'll be like, hey, look, that was a really practical approach to the multitude of problems, the mess that this organization is in. That's what I want to see. Common sense. And I still think. Common sense. Common sense and fun. That's it. This is the last flat cap summer, right? The crunch is going to be very, very real for a lot of teams. You look around the NHL, there, there's just not that much cap space to go around. And, you know, the Canucks, look, they're late to the party in terms of being in a position where they can be players for kind of cap dumps and good players on slightly inefficient deals. But, okay, you're here now. And to me, that should be the first order of business almost. Like, before you even start looking at the UFA targets and certainly the high-end UFA targets, to me, it's scouring the trade market, right? It's talking to Nashville about Ryan Johansson. It's talking to the Islanders about some of their guys because those players are going to come available, and all of a sudden, you're in a position where you can actually add pieces in that way, in a way they have not been able to do before. And this is really going to be the last kick at the can uh, because it's going to be, in all likelihood, the end of the flat uh, salary cap era. So that, again, just you can be aggressive. I have no problem whatsoever with being aggressive. But for me, it has to come from a, a, an approach of 
volume and doing a lot of different little things that have the chance to add up rather than putting all of your eggs in one basket, right? Rather than making it, okay, it has to be this guy. This is the guy. It's the only person we're interested in. He's the only fit, and we're going to go out and get him. Keep your options open and be aggressive. That's fine. I don't have a problem with aggression. Just for once, don't fall in love with the name brand guy you've heard of. Yeah. Just for once. Just for once, be willing to be creative enough to explore alternative options. And for once, regard the salary cap as, as something strategic that you can make work for you. If you're willing to manage it conservatively. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Curtis in T-Town says, Barbashev is a non-starter unless they move a significant winger with salary like Besser or Garland. I'd be happy for the Canucks to move Garland and Besser, replace them with Hoaglander and Barbashev. You're adding much more speed and grit. Doesn't address the center need, but does make them better. Sorry, sorry. In a world where the Canucks can shed an additional $11 million in cap space, Throw Barbashev at the top of your list and sign him to play with Pedersen, and I'm on board. I, I just want to be clear. I know, and that's why I wanted to read that text, because yeah. I don't think it should just be job done. We bought out OEL. Okay, now we're back to adding. Like, I, don't, I think it's going to be too difficult to move Garland and Besser in this environment, as I just described, because it is a flat cap. Yeah. But the idea of, well, wait, hold on. What if we could keep clearing the decks and opening up this flexibility? Then we could be really aggressive. Then we could do a whole ton of, of very interesting things here. If your take is that you want meaner Russian Zach Hyman to compliment Kuzmenko and Pedersen on the top line because you have the cap flexibility to do it, and that's your logic for pursuing Barbashev, sign me up. It's just that that's not a realistic or pragmatic, I think, encapsulation of what this team's off-season priorities should be. Because, again, all of these all of these big-name or name-brand guys that I'm quote-unquote fading in, in this analysis, mm-hmm. I want to be clear how, how high my regard is for those players. Like, go, go search Barbashev expansion, dra- uh, expansion Draft in my name, and you will see me, like, pounding the table on him as, like, the guy everyone should be targeting from St. Louis. I, I, I've loved the player pre-breakout. Uh, it's just that, it's just that for this team, and given his negotiating leverage, and given the demand that there's going to be for Barbashev, I just think he profiles like, like it's, it's literally my least favorite bet to place mm. is power winger over the age of 25, who is coming off of a, a career run of form in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Like that's how you get the Fernando Pisani contract. That's how you get the James Neal contract. That's how you get the Troy Brower contract. That's how you get the Yoel Armia contract. That's how you get, you know, like go down the the Brian Bickle contract. Go down the list. Like this is number one, like red indicator light flashing. Bad bet. Don't place it for me. Uh, this text comes in, and just on your point about like what what the goal should be for next season, and the idea of making it fun and making it engaging, and a team you really enjoy watching. This is I'm t- I'm telling you right now too. Like this is a this is a this is a thing I'm introducing. It's I think we should try and stick to this standard all season. Like was it fun? Well, because a huge part of that though, first of all, it's obviously connected to success on the ice to a certain extent, right? Mm-hmm. And and Tr and Courtney uh, text in, come on, dude, winning is fun, and we have not won. That's the difference, and I, that's that's undeniably part of it, right? And it is, but also you can win. Like there's a there's a world. Well, where not the Canucks, look, not every ninety point season is the same in terms of entertainment that's what I'm value. There is a I world. Get that. There's a world where the Canucks get to ninety points. Like say this season, right? Say this season, if the Canucks had not absolutely stumbled out of the gate, mm-hmm. and then had all this weird infighting through the month of November and December, and then not you know, had the weirdest coach firing in the history of the NHL and also not had all the other noise. And they'd gotten terrible goaltending and Demko got hurt 
but the club's effort level didn't flag, and we didn't spend game after game like dissecting various players' body language yes. and whether or not they left the bench before the period ended after flubbing a breakaway chance. And, you know, it seemed like the guys were connected. It seemed like this team liked one another. It seemed like we were on the start of a journey that might lead somewhere worthwhile. And the team had gotten to, you know, gotten seven more points because they ground out a couple of extra wins mm-hmm, despite, mm-hmm. you know, the things that ailed them. I mean, I think we'd look at it differently. We'd say I, that was fun. I here's a, here's I get, okay. Here's the thing, though. I don't know if the Bruce there it is season was fun for seventy five percent of it. It's j- it, because at least it was like yeah. At least fans were able to buy into that. You heard the support from the upper decks, right? The, yes, you did. The Bruce, yeah. there it is. The players were crushed when they missed the playoffs because they, they believed. bought in. They, they believed. believed. They believed. And you can and you could smell it. And you could smell it. And from that, from that, you get a sense of fun. And for Canucks fans, like what what did we hear all last summer, right? Like with Boudreaux, this team's a hundred and ten point team. Now, I, I I thought that was thin. Yep. I said so at the time. I think that aged well. <laughs> it did age well. But but that's the sort of vibe that I think would could make for a successful Canucks season next year. I just wonder if, like, your comparison to the Sabres. Sabres, it was so clearly, we're turning the page. We made the Eichel deal. We've got Tuck. Tage Thompson's having this breakout. Now Owen Powers here. Rasmus Delian's a stud. Like, the, the, the Sabres had a classic... We've finished rebuilding, and we're on the ascendancy season. And yep. we didn't make the playoffs, but, wow, we were so young and fun. And, and we were close. And we were close, and we were competitive. We, we took were a, in it till the last we week. We took a real step forward yep. based on what we've been doing. I don't know if if your team in the position where the Canucks have been, where you've had these expectations that have fallen so flat for three years in a row, I don't know if it's possible to have the same type of really fun 90-point season. You know I what see, I mean? I, I disagree with you because – this organization has spent, like, they haven't done the draft capital. There's not the young elite talent coming up, but it's still a young team. If Pedersen takes a step, if Hughes takes a step, if Demko is healthy, and more than that, if the players the club identifies, like one thing that a lot of fans take heart in, even though last season was dreadful, is like, well, Dakota Joshua played well. Kuzmenko played well. Mm-hmm. They liked uh, Hakito Hirose's, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, What's the word for like presence? He had he had poise. A, poise, exactly the word I was looking for, man. Nailed we finish it. each other's sentences now. <laughs> um, oh, that's such a bad sign. <laughs> Akio Hirose's poise, right? There, there was like a sense that like, hey, I I really like the pro scouting work of this organization, and look at the AHL team. That's going well. They've invested mm-hmm, in like mm-hmm. people are invested in that part of even even with all of the storm that lingered o- over this club all year. At least there was, like, these gloms, uh, something for fans to glom on to in terms of a story, something they were buying into, something they thought could lead somewhere. So if you're starting to see fruits from that labor, right, if we see Linus Carlson come up and have a good cameo over two weeks and it helps the team, you know, win a couple games that they might not otherwise have because X top six guy gets hurt, right, if you see... Jet Wu make a really strong impression in the preseason and then come up and, you know, just level a couple guys and play some decent defense and maybe push to, like, keep that job through the balance of the season. Like, and the team goes for – like, people will even be willing to accept far more marginal wins than, like, Owen Power should have been considered more strongly as a Norris – sorry, as a Calder candidate. People will glom onto that because this organization has sold that story, because their actions – um, sort of makes sense 
within the context of, hey, they're beginning to deliver on something they've told us they've, they want to do and something we've seen is a priority for them. I think that's enough. Like, I uh, think this organization just, look, can have a win from that. I hear you, and all those things can be true, and people will get invested in them. I just think if at the end of the day it doesn't add up to a playoff appearance, the feeling you're going to be left with is this team just wasted another year of Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes playing an extremely high level and didn't give them a chance to play in the playoffs. I, I, that's, I think that's going to be the lingering feeling at the end of the year. I, I think you're right to some extent. But again, I think if it happens in such a way where they're like in it late, like there'll be disappointment. But I think, you know, I think there's a route. Yeah. I think there's a route to us feeling like this isn't the last few years. It can't feel like part four. It can't feel like part four. four. You know what I mean? Like that's number one. It has to be a clean break and like different in shape than the last three seasons. Well, you have have to. You can't be out of it by November. (laughs) No. No. And and additionally, I'd say this: like you can't. You can't have this sense around this team in watching them play, if you watch closely, right, of, like, a group of talented underachievers. If it feels different than that, I think it's worth considering it as a success if it's fun. Here's one other thing I just want to note. Now, I mentioned that the futures markets are, in my opinion, underrating cap space, so take this with a grain of salt, but it is worth noting the Oliver Ekman Larson buyout in no way moved the mm. needle. The Canucks, it, no, I didn't see a single book where the Canucks' odds were adjusted. So um, maybe that's just the cap space thing. But, I, th- I think it is. But certainly the departure of Ekman Larson isn't viewed by the Vegas books as either a positive or a negative, which speaks volumes. But also, um, but also, just just worth noting. Like this is a big deal for us, but it's not something that's like changed the gambling industry's opinion of this team uh we will take a quick break here we're live on location at andrew share plumbing and heating for a massive milwaukee sales event here come say hi uh 56th avenue in surrey bick nazar and randy jander standing by to take over at two a uh, final segment of canuck stock coming up here on sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet Canucks 650. Talk. Final. What was that? I don't know. I was trying to be your hype man. Okay. I'm like, I'm All Flava right. Flav. All right. Well, yeah. that's fine. Uh, we're here on Sportsnet yeah. 650. Yeah, we're out here. All right. All Andrew right. Sherritt. All right. All right. Settle down, buddy. I'm going to try it. Right it. Right it back in. Zero percent chance. Uh, NHL. Or, yes. What am I doing now? Oh, my gosh. I'm all, <laughs> just, I'm all completely just, off my just game. get through the read. I'm going to keep doing All right. It, and then we'll never forget. We'll forget it. We'll never speak of it again. NHL draft coverage. Draft coverage. Is brought to you by the Vancouver Giants, showcasing NHL prospect talents, including Samuel Hanzik and Jaden Lipinski. Lipinski. Come watch NHL talent in action this season, uh, or next season, really. Go to VancouverGiants.com slash Vancouver Giants. Uh, We are live from the Mobile Kintech Studio. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express. And Lumber. Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And of course, today, does see this is where we need the hype. We are live at Andrew Sherritt Plumbing and Heating on 56th Avenue in Surrey. Andrew Sherritt. Massive Milwaukee event happening today. It Milwaukee. Is, it's popping off. It was honestly like barbecue burgers. I you know, normally one of the great things about uh about driving out to the valley is parking. You're you can park everywhere. 
There's like I had to search for a parking spot here today. It's so popular. It is. People are absolutely loving it. You can you happening. can love it too. This could be you. You could be having <laughs> as good a time as we are and everyone else is here. Uh, you can come down, check out the Milwaukee event, grab some lunch, say hi, enter to win a Google Smart Speaker, come, come uh, and just have a great time. Come emphasize Jamie's comments with me. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyways, 650, you 650. You hated that, eh? Uh, no, I mean, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it, it threw me off my game more than, I would, more than I would like. I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what to do now. <laughs> so it's just like my, my intro is just so rote at this point. I, I know. Like, I'm, I'm, like, one, one hiccup. I was like, ah, what do I do? I think I'm going to pull this out here and there just to mess with you going sure. forward. Keep me but, on my toes. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. All right. Um, so I've, I've promised that we would, uh, we would get into the Dunbar Lumber text line and uh, go through some of your names, some of your <laughs> suggestions that you're interested in. And I should mention, you published kind of an updated post-OEL buyout uh, list of Canucks targets at The Athletic that people can check out as well. And uh, we'll, we'll go through just a few here before we get in maybe to, uh, to some of the takeaways from your piece as well. Uh, Chris from Nanaimo, do you think Adam Henrique would be a fit in Vancouver? as a third-line oh. center. Adam Henrique would be a perfect acquisition, in my opinion. I think Adam Henrique is legitimately good, and people have just forgotten about it because he's on he plays one of the Anaheim. saddest sack teams yeah. and because his particular skill set is so poorly suited to a team, to the, the team that Structure abandoned last and season. I, hold on. I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done on the show before, and I, I'm not going to say that this means it's a great stat or anything. But just the thing, I pulled up Adam Henrique's hockey DB page, he was only a minus eight for Anaheim yeah. last year. Well, and there are times, there are times. <laughs> and it's where like I, Anaheim was like one of the worst, worst goal differential teams of all time last year. And Adam Henrique, a minus eight. That's actually extraordinarily impressive. So there are times where plus minus is worth looking at. One is over extraordinarily large samples. Sure, like sure. Like four years. Like if you're yeah. constantly underperforming your team by plus minus over like four years, then I start to pay attention to it. I still hate it because it mixes game states. Like, just use five on five goal differential, yeah, right? That's yeah. my that's my main problem with it. But um, but I still look at goal differential a lot in determining how well a team uh, player is playing. Like if you're getting outscored, there has to be context for it. But yeah, for a team that surrendered goals the way the Anaheim Ducks did, um, you know, to to come out the way that Henrique did, uh, he was only outscored by two. Yeah, five on five. <laughs> that's absolutely wild. Yeah, on that Anaheim team. Oh boy, Adam Henrique might be like kind of a monster. He um, pretty much across the board, it's like him and Troy Terry were the only guys even close to break even for a Ducks team that really, really sucked last year. Oh yeah, it was absolutely awful, and that, that like some some good luck bolstering that stat, but nonetheless, Adam Henrique is legitimately good. Here's the problem: Ducks need to add twenty million in cap space. So like like they need to add commitments to get to the floor. They need they yeah. they actually need to add more commitments than anyone else. I don't think Arizona is now uh, in last place there, despite having bought well, out did. Zach Cassian, which and slayed me because it's like this is a team that needs to get to the floor to save and no million. We're no gonna money. buy out. We're gonna buy out some players. Well, what? That, yeah, I mean, there's a really interesting opportunity for somebody with Nick Schmaltz this summer. Oh yeah, um, it could be Vancouver, but I don't think it can be unless you're moving off. JT Miller or you're casting JT Miller as a winger full-time now is there an interesting fit with Schmaltz who is a really sick playmaking winger but isn't necessarily the best defensively and certainly isn't the best in the face-off circle 
on a second line with JT Miller on the wing, I mean, that actually I would find very interesting because you have Miller to take the draws and you have Miller on the wing where he's like an absolute lights-out defensive presence. And you've got a really good offensive player in Nick Schmaltz. Yeah, who's also offhanded. You'd have two unbelievable passers. like, And then you've got Brock Besser who can finish, mm-hmm. uh, even though that hasn't been his strength the last couple of years. I still believe in that shot. And Nick Schmaltz was his centerman when they won the Natty in uh, North Dakota. Right? So it's there like there's a, there's a really uh, close relationship there and a lot of chemistry. So that's one that stands out to me as like a pretty interesting opportunity because he's paid like $25 million yeah. over the last three years of his and deal for, on a $5.8 million. For people cap. who aren't aware, he's the rare player where it was uh, it was backloaded such that his uh, – or I guess not rare, but he's one of those players where his actual salary will be significantly higher than his cap it. And if you're a team like Arizona, that is the absolute last thing you want. That is poison to those to well, the Arizona Coyotes. And so there was this moment when he was 25 where he could have bought, been bought out at a one-third buyout cost. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, – I remember uh, wondering if that would happen. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, like I think in retrospect, given how dire like the the Coyotes are in such dire straits that they bought out Zach Cassian, who has a heavily backloaded deal like his cap hit or sorry, his salary well below his cap hit for this last season would have helped them make the floor. But it saved them 700 K and they did it. Um, that's wild to me. Like that is wild. Nemeth Nemeth made sense because he was he was a, a back a front loaded deal. So, like, his cap sure. was more expensive. Yeah. That, to me, made sense to duck. But ducking the Cassian backloaded contract, like, if, if that's a canary in the coal mine of just how dire the financial straits that the Coyotes are trying to navigate uh, at the moment is, uh, that's a really, really scary indicator for for the entire league, but for the Coyotes in particular. On the Adam Henrique one, as we look at, like, potential... Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, they're not going to deal him. They're not going to deal him. They need him to make the floor. And he's not going to be a cap dump guy because they have unlimited space, and he would return more in value surely Probably at the deadline. as a retained salary transaction well, at the, the deadline than he would. The now. one thing I was going to say, so you have to beat their anticipated. Yeah, like, we can get a first and a prospect. The deadline for this guy is the is the hang up. But I was going to suggest like something built around Brock Besser, who it makes more than him, which as you say isn't a big problem for them because they have the space and it you know so it doesn't take them farther away. Uh, from the floor. Yeah, he has the one extra year of term, but they have so much flexibility, they probably don't care about that. And if you're Anheim, are you kind of taking a bet on a high pedigree guy who's a lot younger than Adam Henrique, who maybe fits in with some of the younger centers that you have coming up? That's just off the top of my head, looking at it and trying to kind of solve problems. But I think the problem you do run into is what you mentioned, which is they're going to just hold him and flip him at the deadline and probably get a really good return at the deadline, right? Yeah. And they know that. So. Yeah, so, uh, he, we, like, we didn't include him. We, we ran a list today at the Athletic Plug Plug. You can go read it. It's um, effectively ranking the Canucks trade and UFA targets after the Oliver ekman Larson buyout. As you can imagine, we've separated them into tiers because that's <laughs> what I do, crying all the time. And on that list, we have a group which is the if you get a valuable asset to take them tier. And this, to me, is also another option. Like, this is something the Canucks have never done, Mm -hmm. ever. But I think it's such a good option for this team, given their desire to burn the candle at both ends, right? Like, if, if you're the Canucks, I do think you need to actually be more aggressive than your average team because you're trying to get better and cheaper all at once without ever bottoming out. Yeah. That's that's your goal. Or without even taking a step back. No, no, no. Right? Step forward always. So it's like 
you know, there are players out there who can help the Canucks meaningfully, who are on contracts that are onerous enough to their current teams that they would probably, or in fact, almost surely, pay to get off them. And this list includes, like, Josh Bailey, who's become more of a winger mm-hmm. as he's mm-hmm. aged. Uh, I don't think he's played full-time center since, like, 2019. So it's been a while, but he can certainly do it. Um, he's completely out of favor on, on Long Island. Like, he, he's – and he doesn't have a lot left. But – Maybe he could have a little bit left for you, and he's got one year left at $5 million, and they would absolutely part with an asset to get off of him or or maybe exchange him for, for a productive player. I mean, you know, I, I talked about J.P. Uh, Pajot, and, like, J.P. Pajot's the type of guy who's 1,000% going to net, like, a first and a second, right? Like, Ooh. at least, at least to acquire, given his scoring profile, given his the fact that he's right-handed, uh, he can kill penalties. Like, he's perfect. He's perfect. He's a perfect third-line center for 32 teams in the league, and everyone would want him. <clears throat> you know how you can pay less for him, though, is if you bundle him with Josh Bailey, right? That, right. that, might, be, that might be the only way to do it. So we, we have Bailey on the list. Ryan Johansson. Yeah, Ryan Johansson is the name that I just keep coming back to. He, he just can't kill penalties, and that's the problem. I get that. That's fair. But I do wonder then if you, like, if you, let's say, let's go down the road of a Ryan Johansson deal, and then if you address the penalty killing with, like, guys who that's all they do, right? And you fill mm. out the rest of the roster, so you're not paying very much for them, but you're addressing it in other ways elsewhere on your roster. But the thing with Ryan Johansson is... He's still good on the power play, too, man. And, and, okay, if we just want to think in kind of really cynical terms for a while, right, you were talking about don't be focused on the big-name ticket, don't try to win the offseason. Like, Ryan Johansson still has some name value. You know oh, what I mean? And he, he does. And he's from here, right? Like, he has a track record of being a really, really good NHL player, it's all. It, it, it's almost doing. It's the bargain value hunting because you'd be getting an asset presumably to take him, and also, but you can also say like, "Hey, we went out and acquired Ryan Johansson to be our third line center." Like you can sell it in a kind of cynical way too, well, still to but, a degree. But I think the key is, is it's like, if you take Ryan Johansson's deal, can you get Dante Fabro? Mm. Right? Can you get Dante Fabro and a pick? Right? Can you get one of Dante Fabro or a pick, and they're the team that takes back? One of the one of the overpriced wingers that you're yeah. Garland, you, yeah, or whoever, uh, and, yeah, and then and then you'd want the pick and Fabro, right? Yep. And and it's like that's the sort of thing that I think could help this team accelerate. Barkley Gaudreau's another one, right? The the Rangers have a ton of interesting D, for example. Like I saw they signed Zach Jones to a two year deal. That's a pretty close match with Jack Rathbone. He's going to be like fifty fifty to not clear waivers, mm. right? And he's like. Like, you want to know who the Florida Panthers are claiming off waivers uh, after training camp? It's like Zach, Zach Jones. Jones is, like, number one on your list. Like, you know, e- even that guy. But then, you know, there, obviously there's a million. We've gone over all the Rangers prospects in the, like, oh, din yeah. of the crazy um, JT Miller. We're all very, very familiar with the Rangers prospect system. Well, and, and Mikhail Granlund, like, because the Mikhail Granlund trade was so bad, I feel like people are now being like, and he can't play at all. And it's like, no, he's not terrible. Like, I still don't think he's a terrible player. Mm-hmm. I just don't think he's worth the contract, and he's definitely not worth a second-round pick. But for free, that's something that, you know, you you want a center? Like, you want a center? That's that's a guy who's probably free, and in fact, less than free, right? Prob- probably oh, get yeah. something interesting to take. Yeah. So, you know, for me anyway, that's like, those are the types of things where if this club wants to both get guys who can help them maybe not a lot but get get guys that can help them and also 
sort of recoup asset value, you know, those guys, those guys loom large in my imagination. And, and what's funny about this list is reflecting my analysis today, your favorite target appears in my buyer beware tier. Who, Yan Ruda? Oh, no, Ryan Grace. No, no, like whatever. <laughs> Sorry, I meant, I meant like the royal you. Like <laughs> Scott Lawton. We had, we had right, some, right, 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 right. Just we, like people's favorite targets. Yeah, yeah, we had some inbox questions about Max Domi. And yep. I, I just want to preface this with saying like Max Domi is one of my favorite players. And Max Domi, again, just like not a fit whatsoever. He's, I don't see he's it. He's so cool. Like, I just think he's so cool. He plays such a cool game. I love the, like, raw offensive skill and energy in his game. Yeah. But his, like, he isn't as good as he was defensively for Dallas, or at least he held up two-way for Dallas. That is, like, very much the outlier. Like, this is not a guy who provides defensive value. And I just... I just don't think the Canucks can have another, like, empty calorie offensive producer on this roster, especially up front. Like, it, they need a guy with a, a, a more well-rounded two-way profile. But, you know, Sunkvist, Barbashev, Comfer, Ryan O'Reilly, like, Mayfield, all of these guys appear in the buyer beware tier. And that's by design. Like, I just think it's going to be really hard for this Canucks team to improve this offseason if they're committing half of their available space to one piece unless – they're doing it in such a way that that's well worth their while because of the asset returned, right? Mm. Unless it's for one of those guys that a team will pay to send you and you might be able to mine the absolute last of their hockey value while also netting something valuable. Uh, that Sean Monahan plan, to me anyway, is like one that should loom large in the imagination of the Canucks, and yet I know, based on this organization's usual modus operandi, right, their, their view that to have excess draft capital is to collect picks. Like, the absolute, you know, frankly arrogant belief that any move to set something up worthwhile in the future is beneath them or is a loser move as opposed to something necessary in a hard cap league. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final few minutes here, and we should uh, we should mention a couple of names that have come up in the inbox and that are in your piece as well. On the blue line, Brett Pesci and Noah Hannafin. And, you know, Sat, we played the clip at the beginning of the show from Sat yesterday, and he said, you know, they're not afraid to give up a long-term contract or a big contract, and they're not afraid to go add a big name player or a high-profile player through trade. And both Pesci and Hannafin – you know, they would fit. Those would be really significant deals. I really like both of those players a lot, but it's just the thing is the Canucks have added cap space. They haven't also restocked their ability to go out and make a trade of that work. No. Like those guys are going to be extraordinarily in demand. So unless you're talking about pick 11 all of a sudden being in play here, like I, I, I don't see any way where you're going out and getting into the market on those guys. I probably need a full segment for this take, but I'm going to try and do it really right. quickly. You know what's interesting is the NBA and the NHL are moving closer together. All right. So the NBA has introduced this new CBA, and there's a second tax apron that like absolutely mm. restricts what teams are able to do mm-hmm. once they're in the in in the luxury tax. That's like effectively going to function like a hard cap. So you saw this Bradley Beal trade, yep. where Beal, who's on a toxic contract, returned literally nothing to the <laughs> Washington Wizards. And NBA people aren't yet familiar with like the benefit of moving off a bad contract. So everyone, including my outlet, which graded the the trade a D minus for the for the Washington Wizards, well, like doesn't understand yet the ramifications. And also because of just avoiding because bad what commitments. Beal was one of like two guys in the NBA who had a no trade clause, right? <laughs> so there, whereas here it's like every third line guy is like has a modified no trade clause but Beal was like one of the only guys in the NBA who actually 
said, no, I'm only going to these two places. It was a very NHL transaction that NBA writers are not yet prepared, or NBA analysts, in my opinion anyway, aren't yet prepared to like break down in terms of the overall consequences because they're still familiarizing themselves with what it looks like to cover a league that's like, you know, it's still not a hard cap in the NBA, but it's an awful lot closer mm-hmm. than it has been. It's way more punitive to be a, a luxury taxpayer now. I'd also add that, like, the suspicious officiating in the NBA and the volume of three-point shots and how volatile the make rates are means that the NBA now exists in a place where, like, a cynical, gritty eighth seed can go on an unsustainable shooting run and make the NBA yeah. finals, which hot, is, like, the most NHL thing hot ever. Hot shooting is, like, the NHL or the NBA version of a hot goalie. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? It's like so, it comes and goes or can over a period of uh, It's just of a way weeks. more random than yeah. it ever has been. So uh, in some ways, and, and I think the NHL also is moving close to the NBA in which you've got like these sort of bubbling of player empowerment, right? Mm-hmm, Players mm-hmm. calling their shot. Pre-agency is now a thing. Teams are increasingly seeming to make guys available a year out from their contract expiring. Expiring contracts all of a sudden have a lot of trade value. Like, it's a totally new world in the NHL, too. And and that, in some ways, is moving close to the NBA. So this is my widespread take, which I actually did way faster than I would have expected. Um, but the overall thrust of this, I do think, changes how teams need to be conscious of stockpiling assets. Like, in the NBA, teams operate so as to have like excess draft capital and a lot of like desirable prospects so that when X superstar asks out, they're positioned to win that bidding, right? Like the Knicks, the Lakers, like they don't rebuild. They don't draft Brandon Ingram second because they want to develop Brandon Ingram into a star. They draft Brandon Ingram because maybe there's a chance to get Anthony Davis down the line, right? Like it's a totally different team building model than we have in the NHL, but if we're going to see a Debrinket Dubois style situation emerge every single offseason, if we're going to have Hellebuck, Hannafin, Pesci available suddenly every summer, the way that we seem to be having them, you know, sort of shake loose this year, that's that's going to fundamentally change or should fundamentally change how clubs approach their positioning, both vis-a-vis the cap and vis-a-vis tradable assets. And that's another sort of when you talk about Hannafin and Pesci, that's where the Canucks are kind of stuck. They yep. don't have the assets to win that sort of bidding without making a bet that we would qualify or, or describe as extraordinarily reckless. Without putting this year's first or next well, year's first into, well, into play. Not right? this year's first, but next should be considered? Absolutely not. What, what about a team, what about this team that hasn't finished outside the bottom 16 in the NHL um, in a long, long time? Like, including by actual raw points in the 2019-20 mm-hmm. season, would you suggest... <laughs> should should give anyone any confidence that this team should trade next year's first. That's a wild take. Uh, we got to wrap up here. Bick is over there wielding like a Milwaukee circular saw. I'm very very concerned. I hope nobody <laughs> actually plugs that in. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I trust Bick to handle that one. Uh, Randeep's got like a leaf blower or something over there. I'm, I'm, so I'm I'd way rather be standing next to Randeep with the leaf. Yes, a hundred percent than than Bick with the circular saw. But those guys are coming up on the People's Show live from Andrew Sherritt here on 56 Ave in Surrey. Again, massive Milwaukee event happening. So come on by and say hi. Thanks for listening. Uh, more coming up here on Sportsnet 650.